1975, Bill Hybels was starting Willow Creek Church. Willow Creek is now one of the largest churches in the world. It's in the suburbs of Chicago. And Hybels was a student at Trinity in the suburbs. And when he started Willow Creek, they decided to do church differently than it had ever done, been done before. And that came out of a personal survey that Hybels conducted. He literally went door to door and asked two questions. First, do you go to church? If the answer was yes, he said, thank you, have a nice day. And he went to the next door. If the answer was no, he asked the second question, why not? And the response that came was varied. Does anybody have any guess? I, I, I'm a youth pastor, so I like talking and talking back. Does anyone have any guess? One of the three, there were three uh, overwhelming reasons that came back. Does anyone have any guesses to what those were? <laughs> All right. Um, that is the third one and the most important one that I'm going to talk about. It's boring. There were two others. I can't hear you. No. That's a good... <laughs> okay, there's a lot of ideas. Um, all of these answers, you, you can read about it. Um, they were all present, but when it, there were three overwhelming ones. First off, I don't like it when people ask me for money. Okay, well, I understand that. Uh, secondly, I don't like being talked down to. You stand up there, as I am currently, and you literally are elevated. And you, whether it's from a geographical position or a supposed intellectual position, talk down at me. I don't like that. And third is boring. And when Willow Creek started, they aimed their church headstrong into those objections. I want to I take care of all of the issues that people have with the church, big C, church. And in doing so, Hybels effectively started the seeker-sensitive movement. Uh, if you search it on Google, you'll probably find a bunch of different stuff. Uh, some of its proponents prefer the church growth movement, um, but it's commonly known as the seeker-sensitive movement, where a Sunday morning or a church in general aims their church to deal with the objections of the seeker of somebody who's, who's coming to Christianity, I want this to be exciting for you. I tell you that story um, to say that this morning is going to be the most seeker-sensitive service you have ever been a part of. Um, and it's not because many of the reasons that came out of Willow Creek where we want our band to, to be a little more like a rock band and we want cool videos and brand name coffee. It's, it's not going to be because of any of that. It's going to be because this is the opposite of boring. This is the, the other end of the spectrum. Excitement to the nth degree. It'll have nothing to do with me being able to speak, but all of the content this morning, because this morning our text deals with the incarnation, life, and death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The absolute opposite of boring, the most interesting thing that has ever happened is the life and death of Jesus. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Philippians chapter 2. Um, I have again not done myself any favors and I picked not an easy text. It is full of exegetical landmines and we might deal with some of those. Um, all right. 
If you would, if you could stand with me out of respect for the word of God, and we are going to read Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your revelation of yourself to us in the pages of Scripture. May we as a church regularly, habitually open it up and meet you in the pages of the Bible. I pray that we treat it with respect this morning. And I pray that your presence would be here, uh, not in a, a systematic sense, for we know you are everywhere, but in a relational sense. That, that you would be here and with us and revealing yourself to us through your word. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. You may be seated. Augustine tells a story of walking along the beach, contemplating the mysteries of God. St. Augustine was a church father uh, who lived in northern Africa, so that's the Mediterranean Sea. And he's walking along the beach, thinking about God and all of the mysteries that go with and trying to understand these things. And as he's walking, he comes across the small boy who has a shell, and he's dipping the shell into the sea and taking it to a nearby pool and dumping it in the pool. The shell in the sea takes it to the nearby pool and dumps it. And Augustine laughs to himself, right? That's stupid. <laughs> Do you not understand the size of these two things? And as he's laughing, an angel appears to him. And the angel tells Augustine, that boy will empty the sea long before you understand the mysteries of God. Yeah, that's cool. You're a church father. You can do things like that. Um, this morning, we are going to dip a shell into the sea of the Almighty. Uh, we are not, I'm probably going to raise more questions than I'm going to give answers. Uh, it is deep and vast, and we are not going to be able to take care of all of it. Um, please don't expect that. But it, we get to dip the shell. It's such an awesome thing. It's a privilege. You and I get to take time out on a Sunday and contemplate God. It's a good thing. I hope I don't frustrate you with this text. There is a lot of deep theology in it. Um, it is loaded. I could probably spend three weeks talking about three different words in this text. There is that much information. Um, but we're not going to do that this morning. We're kind of going to steer away from that a little bit. Um, I like theology, so I can't pass up all of it. Um, but the reason we're doing that is because um, of something called authorial intent. That's not what Paul was after. Now, if we read the text, I hope that's going to become clear today. Paul didn't sit down and go, you know what? I need to write everything I know about the incarnation. I need to solve this. Let's just take care of that right now. Uh, the best example I can give of this is also biblical. Um, Moses didn't sit down and write Genesis 1 and 2 as a rebuttal for Darwinism. There is no atheist in the ancient Near East. That's, that is not on his mind. 
Now, it will speak to it. It it will address those things tangentially, but that's not the drive of that passage, right? I'm not trying to prove God created the earth. That's not what I'm after. That's not what Paul is after here this morning. Anselm did that about a thousand years later. He wrote a book, Why God Became Man. Those books exist. There are hundreds of them. I've been reading them this week. Feel free and (laughs) knock yourself out. No shortage of ink has been spilled on this topic. Um, But this morning, Paul is not after that. So we're going to try to go where Paul wanted it to go, to um, take the text and say, what, what did Paul want to teach me from this? And that's where we're going to try and drive this. And then at the end, because I can't help it, I'm going to talk a little bit about the theology stuff. So we'll, we'll get to it. So if you have your Bible, Philippians 2, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves. Pause. What mind? You just jump right into it. I don't know what's going on. Well, this refers back to verses 1 through 4. So, Philippians 2, 1. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and in one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have that mind, Philippians. Can I extend that? Have that mind, Antioch. Us. Be selfless. You want an example? Here, let me show you Christ. Have this mind that is yours in Christ Jesus. Verse 5 is a bridge between those two things. Through 1 through 4, instruction on selfless living, and 6 through 11, the laying out of the life and death of Christ. Verse 5 bridges the gap. All right, verse 6. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We'll come back and talk about some of these words. But right now, I want you to to try and shed all of the the incarnation stuff that you know. I know that's not really possible, but, but do what you can and step into this with the Philippians. Be selfless. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. And humility... Consider others better than yourselves. How? Let me show you. Look at Jesus. He emptied himself. He didn't consider equality a thing to be grasped. I'm not holding tightly to my rights. He cared about someone else more than himself. This is the drive of the passage. This is what Paul is after. It's life instruction. This is a chance for you to look at your own day to day. And say, how can I do this better? How can I look more like Christ? I could be more selfless. Amen. We could all probably learn to be a little more selfless. Our world is begging us to be selfish. And every turn, we have a consumeristic society that is built upon selfishness. This flies right in the face of that. Philippians, be selfless. Look at Christ. Here it is. He doesn't care. I'm not going to hold on to the things that I should have. 
I'm going to give those up for other people. I'm going to care so deeply about someone else that my own personhood, I think the King James uh, translates it, became of no reputation. He gives it up. I am willing for me to be put down so you can be raised up. That's a good way to live. Continues on in verse 9. Because of his obedient, selfless giving of himself, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What do we say here? What's our phrase? Give your life away. Why? Because that's what Jesus did. That's not just an arbitrary idea. We learned that somewhere. Give your life away. Look at Christ. And what happens because of it? He's exalted. Um, it's not in the text today, but I don't think it's a far stretch to say um, that would be the same for you. You give your life away and you're exalted. If you look, uh, Matthew chapter 16. Matthew 16, verses 24. Uh, then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses it for my sake will find it. For what will a man profit if he gains the whole world and forfeit his soul? Or shall a man give, what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with the angels and the glory of his Father. And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Um, now, it's important, and Protestantism has made a big deal of this, and rightfully so, that we make sure the order of that is correct. The, the right living comes as a reflection of a seated position in Christ. Paul is talking to believers, instructing on living with the presupposition they have faith. It's, it's not in our text today, uh, but you can go everywhere uh, in the New Testament and find Paul talk about this, right? You didn't earn, you're not being repaid in salvation. You get salvation by nothing you did, nothing of your own accord. The selfless living is a reflection of your saved position. Make sure that those, those are in the correct order. Uh, that is a, a big distinction. All right, so th there we have it. We've gone through the verses. Paul is instructing people on how to live. He's using this grand story, the life and death of Christ, to say, you need to be selfless. We should care so much for other people that you look at it and go, man, that guy's weird. I've never seen anybody care about someone other than them that much. I don't know. It's kind of odd. I don't know how that works. Um, now, back to my premise at the beginning that this is going to be the most exciting, uh, this is going to be the, the seeker-sensitive uh, message and service. Why, why would I call this seeker-sensitive? Um, before I continue, I need to, uh, I borrowed heavily this week, uh, especially in this section from a guy named Peter Kreft in a book called The Shocking Beauty of Jesus Christ. 
Uh, sermons are all about <laughs> reading people who are smarter than you and compiling that information and repackaging it. Um, I think it's been said that good writers borrow and great writers steal. Um, so, <laughs> stealing. Um, but I just want to make sure it's uh, credits given where credit's due. Th- a lot of this is not my original ideas. This comes from Kraft. I encourage you to go check out the book. Um, my problem with Heibel's conclusion, and, and Willow Creek, I lived in Chicago for a while. They've done some great things. Uh, dear brothers and sisters in the Lord, I'm not uh, saying that any, anything about them not being Christians. My problem with the conclusion about we need to ch- make church more interesting is the belief that church could not be interesting. If you think this isn't interesting, you haven't understood the person of Christ. Everywhere he went, when he met people, they either picked up stones to kill him or fell on their knees and worshipped him. There was no middle ground. It is, it is absolutely the most interesting thing ever done. The reason that church has become boring is because we've t- stopped telling this story. We've given this up. And we don't remember the excitement that came with Christ. We've become bored with it. How in the world could this happen? If this is truly the most exciting thing ever to happen in humanity, how do we think that our music needs to sound like Coldplay for people to be interested in church? I like Coldplay, but that's not what church is about. I don't, if you believe you have to change, we have to cosmetically make church look really good. We have to make it look so interesting. Let's, let's put it in like, it doesn't look like a church building. No more crosses. We'll trick them to getting in. You've misunderstood Jesus. We've we've forgotten this. He emptied himself for me and you. When we deserved nothing, all good stories resemble this. You know that if you read those books, go pick up 10 novels. Eight out of 10 will be this story. We'll have different names and faces, but all truth is God's truth. I think it was Tertullian who said that. All beauty is God's beauty, and any story that's beautiful is beautiful because it resembles the gospel. It is this story when we were dead, not dying, by the way. You weren't drowning and trying to stay afloat. On the bottom of the ocean, drowned, nothing you could do. God stepped out of eternity into time to save us. This is so exciting. It's it. There's nothing more exciting than this. I don't know if the laughter is agreement or disagreement. <laughs> I get a little excited. Um, This is why uh, B.B. Warfield had to say in one of his great Princeton commencement addresses, if there is no fire in the pulpit, then you must kindle it in the pews. You will never fail to meet God if you bring him with you. Those are good words. If If this story ever ceases to be preached from this pulpit, find another place where it is. And if it's not there, keep going. This is what makes us us. It's the story of Christ. It's beautiful. It's shocking. It's interesting. It's white knuckle. I can't believe it. Are you kidding me? And we've turned it into yawn-inducing, lackluster legend of a couple of thousand years ago. There's a God and Jesus was a man and we all should love each other. How have we become bored with this? 
you don't believe me, you say, no, we believe, we are, we are excited. I invite you on a, uh, a little detour in your mind. Take yourself to any sporting arena in America, amateur or professional, doesn't matter. You can go to a t-ball game. <laughs> go to Eugene in a few months on a Saturday, right? Then go to any church service in America. Doesn't matter. Protestant or Catholic, mega church, home church, doesn't matter. You go there. Compare the investment of self in these two places. You tell me where we're excited, what we love. This is a gut check, right? Uh, full disclosure, I'm, I'm a pretty big God fan. Sometimes I worry I'm a bigger Indianapolis Colts fan. And we laugh, but in 2006, Marlon Jackson jumped the route and picked off Tom Brady. 36 seconds left, right? The evil empire goes down, finally. The Colts go to the Super Bowl. I jumped out of my chair with such excitement. There is a mark in my parents' ceiling to this day where my hands hit. I'm not even, that's not a fake story. Never once have I done that in church. Never once have I been so excited they have to hold me down because I can't keep myself in the chair. Oh, this is a gospel. What's going on? It's so exciting. We have misunderstood Christ. We have become bored. Now, Kreft offers a reason to why we have become bored, and I think it's a really interesting one. What's in a flu shot? Weaker strands of a stronger virus. Flu shot is full of the, the most common flu viruses that could be in that season, so your body can build up antibodies to it and you won't get the flu. The cure for a virus is a weaker virus of the same kind. The cure for Christ is weaker Christ stuff. Bracelets and homeboy t-shirts. Right? We've made him commonplace. We have dulled down the second person of the Trinity, fully God, fully man, and we've made him just, oh, he's a good guy. We have removed, the lion has been eaten by the lamb. What was it said? Is he safe? Oh, Aslan's not safe, but he's good. We've made him safe. He's just, he's nice. We've gotten rid of all of the shock, all of the amazing beauty that comes in the gospel. It is void, empty, and our churches reflect that. You know why we sing when we come together? Because we can't not sing. When you play Great is Thy Faithfulness, the reality of my depravity in me wells up, and I know over and over again how faithful God has been that I am still here is a testament to his faithfulness. It, I have to sing. I can't stop singing. I sing because I'm excited about where I am and what I've been saved from. There's no way I can stop that. That is ingrained into being a Christian. It's part of who we are. It's exciting. This is life-changing 
Where, where's the shock? Where's the excitement? We need this. We need to be, I, I was saved when I was seven years old. I need this story every day. I am saved every day by the grace of God. I don't know who to attribute it to. Someone was once asked, when did you accept the gospel? They responded, I hope every day. This is the beauty of Christ, friends. The story of our Savior. It, it is unparalleled excitement. We have dulled it down. I don't want to say that all Christian stuff is inherently bad, but shouldn't we step back and look at that? Isn't that of value to say, have we made this prosaic just because of all of the Jesus things we do? It's just, no, it's normal. There's nothing normal about it. The story is so crazy, so unheard of. Part of the reason I know it's from God is because no person would ever dream this up. This is ludicrous. It makes no sense. You know what I'll do? I'll create something. And then it's going to go bad. And then when it's the worst, I will become one of the things I created to save them, even though I am of infinite value and they are finite value. And I will die humiliatingly for their sake, for our sake. This is more crazy than you having an ant farm and becoming an ant to die for the ants so they could be saved, right? That's laughable. I am of so much more value than an ant. The disparity between me and an ant is less than the disparity between Christ and myself. That gap is, you can't measure it. All right. I promised we'd look at some of the theology stuff and, and I, I like this. So for some of you, this will be the, the best part of the morning. Others of you, feel free to just tune out. Um, th there's a lot of really interesting words in this text and a lot of debate that goes around with them. I shied away from it at the suggestion of a commentator. His name was Gordon Fee. Um, here are his words on the intro to this section in his commentary on Philippians. Unfortunately, the profusion of discussion and debate has sometimes tended to obscure rather than to enlighten. And even worse, to bog down and debate a passage that should cause the reader to soar. It seems tragic that such, that such a marvelous moment should get inundated by so much talk. He goes on to say, here is the closest thing to Christology that one finds in Paul. And here again we see why the scandal of the cross was so central to his understanding of everything Christian. For in pouring himself out, and humbling himself to the point of death on a cross, Christ Jesus has revealed the character of God himself. Here's the epitome of God-likeness. The pre-existent Christ was not a grasping, selfish being, but one whose love for others found its consummate expression in pouring himself out and taking on the role of a slave and humbling himself to the point of death on behalf of those so loved. Um, try not to get the ball lost in the weeds, even though they're good weeds this morning, if that makes sense. Uh, the point of Paul is still instruction on day-to-day -day life. 
And we'll come back to that in a minute. Um, but I would just feel like I did a disservice if we didn't talk a little bit about uh, some of the theology here. So um, we'll start in verse six. Who though he was in the form of God, what does that mean? That's a, he's in the form of God. What does Jesus being in the form of God mean? Um, commentators agree across the board on this as to what form grammatically means, not theologically. Grammatically, the word form, uh, morphe, is the essential quality, the underlying nature of something. Uh, there's a Latin phrase that, that sums it up really well. Sin qua non, it means without which it is not. A square without corners isn't a square. This is what part of what makes that that. It is this isness. If that's a if I can make that up. Um, I don't know. This word in the form of God means the same substance. Now, uh, I love history and I love church history. In 313, Constantine legalized Christianity. It's the Edict of Milan. And all of a sudden, everything that was underground became public. Pericles of Athens says, all good things should flow into the boulevard. And Christianity was one of those things. All of a sudden, what had to be whispered about was now brought into public forum. We're discussing these things. And with that came public opinions. And believe it or not, Christians don't agree on everything. Um, shocking. And so uh, by 325, we had a solid 12 years. Um, Constantine had to call a council. It's called the Council of Nicaea. And there was this discussion. And the church needed to recognize, and I use that word intentionally, um, if Jesus was God, or if Jesus was like God. That's a big difference, right? When I taught this to the uh, high school students, I could use the example, if you're buying an iPod online, and it says, like an iPod, we all know what that means. <laughs> Nothing like it, <laughs> Right? The, the gap between a like new car and a new car is huge. It's just not anywhere near. So this, this uh, debate over uh, the heretic Arius suggested that Jesus was like God. He wasn't the same. He was like God. And they had a council to, decide, to recognize um, if Jesus was God of the same substance or like the same substance. You guys ever heard phrases and not known where they came from? We do this all the time. Um, I looked up a few. I'll just give you one. Uh, keep me posted. You ever heard that phrase? There was a time when post-it notes didn't exist. Where did that come from? Keep me posted. Uh, when cities were built, old ones, they were generally built in the round. If you've ever been to the East Coast to go to Boston or Philly or something, and there's, there's something right in the middle. They used to put a post Literally, when you wanted to go somewhere to meet or you wanted to post something, you did it on the post. Keep me posted. All right, there you go. You ever heard the phrase, I don't give one iota? Anybody ever thought, what does that mean? If you search that, you'll get a lot of people saying an iota is the smallest letter in the Greek alphabet. I'm saying I don't even give the littlest bit. It's partially true. That is really relating back to this story at Nicaea. The word between of the same substance and like the same substance was one letter different, an iota. It's just, it's just that much, but it meant so much. 
I believe it was Jerome who later wrote that an iota almost split the entire Roman Empire. This word means he is of the same substance as God. Jesus is God. That, that doctrine comes fully later, uh, something that we call the hypostatic union. He is fully God and fully man. Um, I've used a lot of Bible words or theology words probably more accurately. Um, I don't, don't shy away from that. Those are used intentionally to safeguard things. So when we say that, everyone knows what hypostatic union means. There's no like wiggle room as to what that could be meaning. That's why those are there. They're a good thing. Um, Jesus is God, the same substance. Now, I said grammatically, people agree on what that means. Theologically, there's a lot of different ideas. I'm just gonna give you three. Um, none of the lists I'm about to give you are exhaustive. Uh, there's many and you can go and read. I invite that. Uh, the first option, this is referring to Jesus as the pre-incarnate Christ. Be before he became Jesus of Nazareth, he was, right, what did John call him? The Lagos? The, and the, the word, when he was, th this is referring to that in the same form as God. Uh, the second option uh, that commentators have gone with is this is referring to the incarnate human Christ, referring to Jesus of Nazareth as a person being divine, the same form as God. Um, and the third option, I, I really don't think this, if you read the text and the context well, you can come to this conclusion, but uh, I found it in several commentaries. So um, there's an idea that this is referring only to his humanity. And the same way that Adam is created in the image of God, Jesus is in the form of God. I don't think that can flow from this passage, honestly, um, from an honest reading of the text. It's a stretch. Um, but I found it uh, more than one place, so I figured I'd give it to you. So there you go, in the same form as God. And keep going. Did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Whoa, what does that mean? What are you talking about? What is, what is, was he like in a power struggle? What's going on here? Um, again, there are a, a plethora of books written and I encourage you to go and read and be informed. I'm not gonna, I have options. I'm not gonna give you those because I'm, I wanna emphasize what Paul was emphasizing. This passage is intense rhetoric for the sake of a point. If you look down at your text, it could have read very simply, who though he was in the form of God, made himself nothing. We could have skipped that whole equality of God a thing to be grasped. We could have skipped all of that. It would have read perfectly fine. Why is it there? It's, it's a, a, a not but contrast. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but didn't, did. It is an intentional rhetoric to drive home the point of selflessness in Christ. Paul is using a device linguistically to help you understand how selfless he really was. Paul's not after what that meant. He doesn't even care. He just goes right on by it. Um, if you want, I'm more than willing to talk with you about it later. There are lots of interesting ideas. Um, or go read some books. That's also a, a good choice. Um, on to verse seven, but made himself nothing. Okay, here's the big one. It's talked about a lot. This is called the kenosis passage. That's the word, the emptying of himself. What did he give up? What did he make himself nothing? 
When Christ became man, what did that do? Um, I have four options, and before I give them to you, let me give a word of warning. The text is not incredibly clear. I would strongly encourage, if you take a view, to hold it loosely. To, to have a view and let your priority to be to live at peace with other believers. Uh, be informed, know what you're talking about. But I was a theology student and a freshman in college one time and, and it took about four years to learn, I don't have to tell everybody what I believe on everything. That, that was a four-year lesson. Um, you don't have to fight on this one, all right? Don't die body fighting this battle. Hold it loosely. So here are four options as to what he could have emptied himself of. Uh, first, uh, Gordon Fee, who I read from just a little bit ago, suggested that this is merely an illustration. In 2 Corinthians 8, Paul says, uh, Christ became poor so that in his poverty, you might become rich. Did he lose money? It's just an illustration to help you get the point. So there's that option. Um, secondly, he gave up his position of glory. I'm going to read from John 17 on this one. Uh, Jesus is in the garden, the high priestly prayer. And in John chapter 17, verse 5, Jesus says, he's praying to God, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Okay. Um, that implies that he doesn't have it now, but he had it once. Uh, so there's that idea, that when Jesus emptied himself or made himself nothing, as the ESV translates, that it was giving up of the glory that he had with God, the Father. So there's two. Number three, he gave up independent use of some of his divine attributes. Uh, this is a logical conclusion. It makes sense logically. I don't know if I can support it really heavily scripturally other than by saying logic dictates, um, which isn't necessarily a, a bad thing. Hear, hear clearly on that. Um, we believe in an omnipotent God. We believe Jesus is God. And Jesus took naps. I don't, we believe God is all-knowing. Jesus is fully God. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature. I don't, how could you grow in wisdom if you know every, it, it makes sense logically to say he gave up independent use of some of his divine attributes. I say independent use because he still does miracles, right? Like, wait a minute, he does things that are divine. So did the apostles as the spirit worked through them, the power of God allowed them to do things that no other person could do. So there's that option. He gave that up. And uh, finally, again, this list is not exhaustive. Uh, John Calvin suggests that he did not give up anything uh, tangibly as far as his attributes. He just concealed them and gave up the recognition he would have gotten for being divine on earth. Uh, that in the emptying of himself, it was a concealment of his divine attributes that is temporarily shown on the Mount of Transfiguration that he is divine. And he concealed that while he was on earth. So there you go. Those are four options as to what the emptying could have meant. Again, hold them lightly and make your priority to be to live at peace with other Christians. Uh, that is a good principle on anything along these lines. All right, now, um, in closing, I'm gonna give you three reasons why this is important. 
What does this matter? I'm talking about all this theology stuff and it's exciting to you, I get it. Um, what, what does this mean for me practically today? Um, two of these are straight from the text and the first one is, again, a logical conclusion that is supported elsewhere. Um, first, why is the incarnation important? It allows atonement to be accomplished. Um, I'm going to turn to 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Uh, if, if you want more, there's plenty more verses. You go to 1 Peter 3.18, 1 John 2.2. 2. Um, there, there's a, a wealth of, of material on this, of Christ becoming sin for us. Because he was perfect and because he was infinite, his blood can cover infinitely. The, the DNA of the atonement was built into Old Testament Israel. You guys ever heard the term scapegoat? That comes from the Bible. It's here they would take a goat and lay the sin symbolically of Israel on the goat and send it out into the desert. It took the blame for the people. Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice. His blood covers us. It allows the atonement to be accomplished. It could not happen if he was not fully God. Has to be. It's essentially what makes Christianity Christianity. One of our distinctives. Secondly, it necessitates the worship of Christ. You can read in your text, therefore, because of his humility, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. We worship because he is worthy. He is worthy because he gave himself for us because he is God. It is ingrained into who he is to be worthy of worship. And third and finally, and I've been driving this one home all morning, it provides an example for us to follow. Again, this is what Paul was after. Look at the life of Jesus. Look at this amazing selfless humility. Live it. Be that. Care about other people more than you care about you. This picture of unparalleled paramount of humility, Christ steps out of eternity in his place in heaven, to care about us, being obedient to the Father. That is selflessness like you have never seen or heard before. And with that, I uh, zoom out, uh, Google Earth view, if you would, just zoom way back up and take a principle from today. If you're gonna write one thing down, let it be this. Deep theology is never divorced from deep life change. For Paul, those two things are inherently glued together. You can't separate them. I think deeply about Jesus and it goes right along with me living selflessly. There is no bifurcation of the two. They are always joined. Deep theology is always joined with deep life change. All theology is practical theology. There's no such thing as an ivory tower scholar. You cannot sit up and read and write and, and not in, interact with people and try to change who you are. Deep theology is always, 
always connected to deep life change. If it isn't, you did it wrong. Go back, try again. I hope this morning that um, we got to take a brief snapshot of the person of Christ. Of the beauty and the excitement that lies there. That you and I believe. If you are a seeker today and you're not, you don't have faith in this. This is what we are. There's more to it, but this is one of the essentials. That Christ is fully God and out of obedience to the Father, he gave of himself to give us a way to become saved. That is a free gift out of nothing you have done to deserve it. I close with the words um, of a man who understood the excitement of Jesus in the hymn, Hallelujah, What a Savior by Philip Bliss. Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came. Ruined sinners to reclaim, hallelujah, what a savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood, hallelujah, what a savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless lamb of God was he. Full atonement can it be, hallelujah, what a savior. Lifted up was he to die, it is finished, was his cry. Now in heaven, exalted high, hallelujah, what a savior. When he comes, our glorious king, all his ransomed home to bring. Then anew this song we'll sing, hallelujah, what a savior. Amen.